0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the 180th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of memorials with Paul Farber of the Monument Lab. please do help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 3rd, 2020, there are 1,501,076 deaths from COVID-19 globally. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 14,012,378 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 274,648 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 271,347 reported yesterday. People in the United States yesterday died at approximately a rate of two per minute from COVID-19. as a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Bearing Witness Taken by COVID-19. Daria Vera's impassioned civil rights advocacy lives on by Francisco Guajardo. This appeared in The Monitor, November 1st. Daria Vera, a lifelong resident of Rio Grande City, died August 6th at 5:05 p.m. at the Baptist Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. At 73, she succumbed to complications resulting from COVID-19. Daria's daughter, Marcella Olvera, bore close witness to her mother's life and tells that the hospital in Rio Grande City had simply run out of space to treat COVID-19 victims. So they flew my mother to the Baptist Hospital in San Antonio and she died there, she said. It was very sad because we could only communicate with her through the computer. Daria was born on November 18, 1946, in Rio Grande City. She attended school up to the third grade and, at a young age, began to work in agricultural fields in South Texas and even followed the crops to the fields of West Texas. Her lack of formal education did not define her, however. Marcella describes her mother as a spark plug, a capable woman whose enormous talent was matched only by her immense passion. When Daria was 19, she worked as a melon picker, earning 40 cents an hour to pick cantaloupes, a wage much lower than what other laborers earned. Daria did not like that, and she did not like the fact that there were no bathrooms available to women working in the fields, nor was there running water or access to other basic laborer necessities. The United Farm Workers Organization, led by Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, was just gaining strength across the country, and it came to Daria's community to gauge interest in a strike, to protest low wages and unacceptable working conditions, Daria threw herself into the organizing effort, assuming a leadership role in the famous melon strike of 1966 in Rio Grande City. This historic event pitted melon growers against the workers who picked the melons. To combat Daria and other strikers, the growers looked to bring in replacement workers from Mexico. When a bus with Mexican workers made its way across the international suspension bridge between Miguel Aleman, Tamalipas, and Roma. Daria laid down on the bridge to block the oncoming bus filled with replacement workers. A photograph of Daria and another striker became the subject of national news. That photograph is, by the way, connected with this obituary, and I'll post that on Twitter after the program today. According to historian Maritza de la Trinidad, who conducted an oral history with Daria in 2016, quote, Daria loved that picture. She was so proud of her role in the strike and adamant that she should be involved. She was such a formidable woman. After the strike, Daria and others led a march from Rio Grande City to the state capital in Austin to announce their protest before the state government. Along the way, they stopped in small towns that dotted the South Texas landscape. Kennedy, Texas, was one of those towns, and the strikers apparently made an impression on one of of the churches in town. For a half century after the strike, Daria continued to work in the fields. She raised a family, lived a proud life, but material success never came to her. As she settled into a modest life, Marcella said that her mother basically lived in poverty. She said her house was almost unlivable, but Pastor Martinez from the church in Kennedy, a town they visited on the 1966 march, came just a few years ago. With others from their church, they built my mother a new house." Unfortunately, COVID-19 took Daria, but not before she cemented her legacy as a woman of historical importance. Professor De La Trinidad, who bore witness to Daria's life through the oral history process, said Daria saw herself as the mother of the community and through her activism, she also became one of the people who would launch the civil rights movement in South Texas. K en paz descanse, Daria Vera. Rest in peace. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and I'm really Pleased to have Paul Farber back. Uh, We had him on a couple months ago for a brief conversation. Let me introduce him now. Paul M. Farber is director of Monument Lab. He also serves as senior research scholar at the Center for Public Art and Space at the University of Pennsylvania's Weitzman School of Design. Paul's research and curatorial projects include transnational urban history, cultural memory, and creative approaches to civic engagement. He's the author of A Wall of Our Own, an American History of the Berlin Wall, which appeared this year with the University of North Carolina Press. This book tells the untold story of a group of American artists and writers who found refuge along the Berlin Wall and in Cold War Germany in order to confront political divisions back home in the U.S. He's also the co-editor with Ken Lum of Monument Lab. This is an indispensable book. Monument Lab, Creative Speculations for Philadelphia, appeared with Temple University Press last year. A public Art and History Handbook, designed to generate new critical ways of thinking about and building monuments. He previously served as the inaugural scholar in residence for the Mural Arts Project in Philadelphia. His work on culture has also previously appeared in The Guardian, Museums and Social Issues, Diplomatic History, Art and Public Sphere, VIBE, and on NPR. Paul Farber, thanks for joining us today again on COVID Calls. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's really great to be back and be in conversation with you again. So let me start the way that I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Yeah, so I, I'm um, in Philadelphia. And, um, you know,
1: it's um, in in the moment that um, the kind of fall where um, there were more people outside, there was, um, you know, in some cases, uh, kind of cautious, um, socially distanced reality, and unless in other cases, not as cautious, getting kind of ready, and right in the midst of a new wave of lockdown. So, you know, a number of, you know, I'm, I'm in the arts and culture, i um, in history world. And so um, a number of institutions uh, across the city, museums, especially that had worked incredibly hard to open their galleries and find ways to kind of continue programming. Uh, many of them have have closed their doors officially, um, at least through the new year, and as all of us have been doing, have been pushing to find ways to engage um, virtually. And you know, I, I give a lot of credit to the folks in the sector who've been pulling together from, you know, like just really the first days after the pandemic and creating community um, in ways that hadn't actually existed before the pandemic. Um, so taking no solace in all of the, the difficulties, um, some of the furloughs affecting museum staff, disproportionately the frontline staff, the education mm-hmm. team, which um, in, in a lot of cases are you know the most diverse and most kind of dedicated to issues of social justice. Um, so recognizing that and also just appreciating the incredible effort work to Keep culture as vital um, in this city, really, especially from the artists and artist community here.
0: And it really resonates. I mean, I talked early on, I mean, back in June, I had a number of conversations with um, researchers and staff and leadership at the Academy of Natural Sciences, which is affiliated with Drexel. They were doing unimaginably creative things to engage the public at that time. It was a rough time because that's a time of year when school groups would be crowding. The academy, and I know that um, they're exactly as you described, This time of year would be another sort of really busy time for them, welcoming people in. To miss those two moments to engage the public, not to mention day to day, is is just really hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, I wrote an op-ed very early in the in the pandemic for the the Philadelphia Inquirer, and it, you know, it, I think the title was something to the effect of "A meteor just hit." Um, our arts community in Philadelphia and and th- at that point I mean it seems like a lifetime ago where it seemed like the shutdowns and the pandemic like might last a, of, a matter of weeks rather than months and or year plus. Um, but, you know something I said then and I stand by now that if for some reason we had a holiday or time off from, from work um, you know <clears throat> you'd see the museums filled and, and flooded. That's what happens during the holiday season. So you know, it's 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 absolutely a challenge. One thing I will say um, is like, if you're looking to support museums at this time and you can't go there, almost all of them have shops that you can do holiday shopping at. Um, you know, you can be a part of the, the, both on a big level for your favorite museums, but also the grassroots um, organizations and um, museums and even independent artists like Monument Labs um, store. Is a way to support us without showing up. At an event right now, so um, there's so many other people who you can show support and solidarity to, even if you're in the habit of of usually being in person with them. You can still be in spirit and solidarity.
0: There's so many things I want to ask you about today, but I want to just start. I wanted to ask you this question first: What was the first monument or memorial that you remember? that grabbed your attention. I w- I'm trying to get a little bit of sort of context of where you come from with this with this work. Do you remember what that might've been the first time you saw monument statue memorial in a city or maybe not in a city and thought, wow, that's something I need to know more about.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I appreciate the question. I have to say today has been a day where I've been on a little bit of um, a conversation um, tour and I, I spoke to a, uh, an undergrad class um, uh, college class today, and I spoke to a class of seventh graders, and all of whom are working on monuments, and, and actually said something, uh, I'll answer your question, but actually go about it in different, a slightly different way, which is um, most of the, the sites that come to mind now for me fade into the background. They were the field trips that you are much more invested in, like the experience around it and the time with your friends that you don't, you, you're told this thing is important whether it's a museum, whether it is a statue, but really to find a personal connection is much tougher. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it was actually really a site that, um, it wasn't because it it grabbed me, Is actually a little bit of the opposite. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia in the, the neighborhood of Mount Airy, and I, I went to school in Germantown. Um, at, at Germantown Friends. And, you know, in you drive um, kind of every day to school down the cobblestone road of Germantown Avenue, a former Lenape walking trail turned into a, a colonial road. And the, the cobblestones, like I, I would ask why we would be there. And it was the sense that somehow they were historical. I didn't know, under, understand at the time that that's um, part of that is as much of a story and a kind of a sensibility um, let, as opposed to like a pure history. But it was understanding that um, like of all the kind of ways that I imagined life in in the neighborhood, there was a, um, a pretty um, ignored site that was George Washington's summer home, um, the Dashler Morris house on Germantown Avenue. Hmm. Um, I, I remember the, the kind of yellow shutters um, that were badly painted and no one could ever go inside. And it kind of struck me. I thought, like, this is a really important site, I would imagine, I'm t- or, or as I'm told, but there's no connection to it. There's no vitality to it. And when I look around the neighborhood and I think about expression and, and creativity, I would hear music playing out of out of stores and um, out of cars. I would, you know, uh, see art galleries. I would see all these other vital forms of expression, the way people wear clothing and um, the way that the community organizers work. And it was that site that I was told was very important that I felt no connection to. So I think if anything, that really sticks out to me that um, there was a little bit of a disconnect for me between what what seemed important or what what had the kind of aura of importance to then what had vitality, what had spark, what had connection to it as well.
0: that thanks for sharing that and it's it's interesting because i grew up in a in a suburb of fort worth texas and i've thought a lot about just thinking about i was going to talk to you today that it was a place that um was monumentless mm. i mean there was if, if you didn't look hard i mean there were almost no historical institutions at all a couple of plaques here and there and um and so I was hungry for that. And I remember when I would go to cities as a kid or roadside attractions, even, even the, the flimsiest roadside marker saying something happened here, which in Texas might have been something that happened in the 20th century, um, I would devour it. But I grew up in a place where the monuments were, I mean, the monuments were the freeways. I mean, there were no, there was not that. So that experience you described, it must be one, you know, growing up in Philadelphia that you are really surrounded by uh, attempts to memorialize, attempts to tell you and dictate to you what the history, what the important sites were supposed to be.
1: Yeah, and you know I, that's a great point. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, in some ways that's um, a luxury of being in Philadelphia, and also it's a, a little bit of a kind of challenge that you grow up into, which is um, where does history live? Who gets to tell it? Um, and how do you make sense of it? And I think. You know, over time, I've understood this kind of fabric woven together of historical memory. Um, there's the prominent sites like Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and Independence Mall and, and even City Hall. There are historic markers um, that tell a, a slightly more critical take or at least a collective take. Um, and of course, then there are the kind of unofficial or, or even grassroots sites, the house museums, the mm-hmm the kind of spontaneous forms of, of memory. I, I have to say though, you know, I think over time, on one hand I was really drawn to the places that I saw people, you know, mm-hmm. talking to. And I, I feel like um, it was always seeing the life of people. I, I think of the art museum steps as a place that's really important in so many ways, and in this summer, um, in a summer of unrest and protest, was a, a gathering point, and we could, you know, of course, talk more about that site. Mm-hmm. I, I think also, though, I, I, you know, something I didn't answer in your first question, but again, I'm, I'm not sure. It's another way I'm thinking about it is, um, as a high school student, my first internship I had was at Philadelphia Weekly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I, I would take the train. Um, downtown. And I was, you know, excited to be able to be in, in like the middle of the city. And I would come across all these places of, you know, different statues and public art. And I would see, you know, murals that really influenced me. But I had a really vivid experience. It, it did really stick with me. And I, I think a lot about it now where I had, um, I had never seen the kind of post-industrial landscape of the city. I didn't even know that was the name for it. But I was really aware in that moment that I'm riding a train and out the front window, you can see the skyline that's glittering. Mm-hmm. And I knew what was there. And, and, but I'm looking out the window in the regional rail and there are factories that are shuttered. That um, some of them look like they shuttered a few days ago. Some of them, they look like they were shuttered decades ago. Sometimes there would be trees growing out of them. Sometimes there'd be signs of life. It just was a very, it, 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 it put a kind of um, question in my mm-hmm. head which is like, who gets to make memory in the city? Mm. Um, and I remember as a high school student, I wrote a, a kind of long poem about it and read it at the at the high school assembly. It kind of, it stuck with me because it felt, you know, I didn't have the language of unintentional monument, um, which I would call it now, an unintentional monument to the the challenges and failures of progress, of, of economic um, stagnation, of lost opportunity. But at that point, I, I remember, and I have to find that poem. I, I, my my um, parents gave it back to me recently in a kind of speaking of memory, um, a memory handback. But um, I remember thinking about this kind of contrast between the historic city I was getting to know better, working downtown of Ben Franklin City, of William Penn City, the one that I was told the city of beneficent statesmen. Um, and then the other side of it, which was the challenges and the failures. And I, I really, I, I felt like actually at that point, it wasn't um, necessarily a, a disillusionment though there was a little bit of that. It was more of a kind of hunger to see how the stories um, of, of, of so-called progress and, and of course challenge were braided together in the city that I was growing up in and, and loved, but also knew um, had its own had its own challenges too.
0: We'll get to COVID, but I want to, if, if you don't mind, I want to also ask you about this book that you've got just out, A Wall of Our Own, An American History of the Berlin Wall. Anybody who's been to Berlin, um, of course, is going to want to get their hands on this book. But Berlin also has come to stand in, I think, um, globally as um, a site of memory. And even if you don't get a chance to go there, people are conversant with the various sites of, of memory there and it's a powerful place to be. And as you said, unintentional monument, unintentional uh, memorial, the whole city to me feels that way. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, so, you know, I I think um, just to say like the book is
1: um, a way to understand American history, American culture from the Cold War to the present. And when I I set out to do it, it was was, um, first a dissertation project before it was a book. I wanted to write 10 different dissertations. I wanted to write about the history of um, racial injustice in the country. I wanted to think about um, a queer history. I was, you know, my background was in urban studies. So I was thinking about the life and life cycles in cities. Um, I wanted to write about contemporary Jewish identity. Like there's all these things. And I I was doing a, a PhD in American culture and I, had an opportunity to go to Berlin for the summer that I thought would be a critical distance away. I didn't understand it would be a critical distance meshed in. So first thing I found out was I was not original in my um, meanderings. I'd go to a cafe, finding myself, listening to other people, finding themselves, anthropologists, literary scholars, historians. Um, But then that summer, a few different things happened. I saw the work of Jewish American photographer, Leonard Fried uh, in, in the CO Berlin. Um, and an image that he photographed that ended up being the cover of my book was a photograph of a black American soldier guarding the U.S. Um, militarized border within Berlin days after the wall went up while being denied full citizenship rights at home. Um, I saw memorials and and monuments, some as big as city blocks, others as, as small as a cobblestone, and um, I knew that Berlin is a heavy place. I'm Jewish, and I grew up with a, a sense mm-hmm. of, of locus of trauma. I have to say, it, it, you know, seeing the scars of the city on the surface was actually more of a relief. It was to to kind of notion that um, the 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 lie wasn't being activated, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That the truth of chick pain, the truth of trauma, but also the room for transformation. Because I you know, ran into the stories and even um, the, the kind of communities and multiracial coalitions of, of expats, of artists, of, of emigres. And, um, and so, and then I saw candidate Obama on the campaign trail and this was the summer of 2008. And all of this cohered to say, well, I didn't actually leave the United States fully. I'm in the footprint of American power abroad. And the one thing that I could combine all of my different interests and in was a project in Berlin because every artist that I wanted to write about, every writer that I was interested in engaging had a Berlin story and I was walking in their footsteps. And the, the idea for me was that for, I saw that they were both at home and haunted by Berlin. People like Angela Davis, Audrey Lord, Keith Herring, Shinkichi Tajiri, Leonard Freed, Paul Robeson, Langston Hughes. Even the people who didn't have a significant Berlin story there were these connections to post World War II Berlin. I think of um, James Baldwin's letter to Angela Davis, um, which talks about a visit that he took to Germany. Um, and so, all of these different stories, this multiracial coalition, that is what spoke to me. And I think over time, what I've seen with Berlin is that um, it has, is, you know, among the heaviest histories that I can imagine that to bring the bear there. But as I said, the scars of the city live on the surface. And while being there at various points, it's made me think differently about mm. the monument landscape in the United States. I remember having these kind of revelations. Like I remember walking the streets of Berlin, feeling the even the afterlife, the legacy of violence, even as sublimated, you know, and I kept thinking, well, the legacy of, of, um, of what we call race riots or civic unrest due to police brutality, generations and generations. I I haven't seen that demarcated in cities in ways that are commemorative or healing. I've seen them in the kind of economic fallout of places um, in Philadelphia, um, uh, around Broad and Lehigh and Detroit and in in, uh, Washington, DC and on, on the U Street corridor, like all these places that take generations to rebuild and rethink and go through these cycles. So Berlin for me was a place to think. It was not a place to imagine life as as, as easy or just utopic, but it was, um, as I realized in looking at the stories of so many other um, critical, as I call them in the book, American Berliners, places where they went to have critical distance. And that for me is kind of what is is fascinating. It's, it's Berlin as the site of trauma, and it's also Berlin as a, a space to vantage the kinds of transformation that's necessary.
0: Well, I mean, that your observation there that you went to Berlin, I and mean, of course and you're discovering others who've been to Berlin or engaged with German history as a way to then think about American history is profound. And I, I, I mean, I'll just share um, that um, when I was in Hiroshima, and I, I come to find out a lot of Americans have this experience, I have a colleague there who teaches at the Peace Institute and he said, after I spent my first day there, he said, oh, yeah, you went through the American day where you didn't know how to act mm. in Hiroshima. And, of course, you go to the A-bomb dome and you go to the Peace Park. It helped me understand myself. It helped me understand American 20th century history. In, in, and I studied the atomic bomb and I would studied that in great detail. But to physically be there and see the park, see the arrangement of it, even just understand the physical um, scale of the disaster, and to see the paper cranes, mm. um, it, and most profound, the mound that they have there, which is the burial ground of the unidentified victims of August 6, 1945. I needed to see that to then understand to understand that event, but also to understand, frankly, what I still see as the gross inadequacies of American memorial culture. It 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 really made it, and I so saw what you're saying really resonates with me in that in that regard,
1: and 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 of course that um, that's a site outside of the the notion of our U.S. borders, but it's a site of American violence. Exactly. Um, and, and you know I think in the in the shadow of that, um, it is true. It it calls you to attention. Um, you can I think you know in the tradition of of many of the people I mentioned. Um, that are in the book, "A Wall of Our Own," being outside of the U.S. borders gave them a, a g- gives gives them gives us a vantage point um, to understand the the history, the complexity of our own country. It's it's one of the reasons, one of the most challenging parts about about the the pandemic is the challenge of travel. Um, and um, that doesn't just have to be international. That's even around in our own cities. You know, I'm a proponent of finding places of belonging and home, but also of being um, a thoughtful visitor and moving around in ways to learn from from other people around you and other sites. So just you know, thinking about like the the, the moment that you shared, you see yourself and you see yourself as part of a, a bigger set of systems, and you see where you stand in history. Um, and it kind of can call you to attention and um, in addition to kind of reckoning to inspiration for the work that
0: you do. So let's. Um, I guess I want to ask you one more thing just before we talk about some of the things you're doing right now with with COVID, and that is just around how you understand some of the more recent changes in memorial culture. And um, you know, like so, I visited uh, a Little Bighorn Battlefield custer battlefield in 1991 and at that time it was um it was just a field some stones grass you would, if you didn't know the only people who died there were custer and his cavalry flash forward to the 2004 i visit again with my brother and my father all of a sudden uh it's the cavalry memorial but also native american memorial is there i think of the oklahoma city um uh, bombing memorial and museum of course coming on board the September 11 uh, memorial and museum it it does seem like the 90s into the early 2000s was an inflection point in terms of merging um, museums and memorials and also beginning to expand the we there of who we're remembering at this memorial certainly a project that as we've learned this year is is vastly incomplete but at least had started by that point I wonder if you, because that those were years in which you were beginning to first formulate your thinking along these lines. How do you see that moment in time in terms of memorial culture, particularly reflected against where we are now?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think um, one source I would just recommend for folks who are interested in that specific period too is Erica Doss's book uh, *Memorial Mania*, which looks into this kind of boom. And I think, in in some ways, when we're talking about Monuments or memorials, and I, I um, although they are are distinct in 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 many tax in taxonomies, I think that they actually blur in in terms of how they're utilized. Like there are sites of of memorial that um, are um, while they're oriented around loss and grief, they are trying to express kind of virtues and visions for a future, and likewise monuments that um, may even be brash or loud or. Um, kind of um you know heavy handed but are actually when you look at them you understand the kind of uh, profound grief that either is on or adjacent to the pedestal um so i mean i think what part of what we look at in the kind of waves of of memory in in the united states um in the early 1980s is uh and and through the rest of the decade is a kind of big boom a lot of scholars have talked about around memory culture and that that comes out of a few different um, frameworks. That's the profound loss of of life in Vietnam, both you know the seventy thousand American soldiers killed and and millions of Vietnamese people. And the legacy of that war, and the the preparations for the first Vietnam Veterans Memorial um, on the Mall, among um, countless others across this country um, and elsewhere. You have Holocaust survivors starting to um, pass away. And the kind of insistence of of um, the Shoah project and um, the building of the Holocaust Memorial in Washington D.C. as a place to say, wait a second, we we can't take for granted that these stories and and also these individuals, the witnesses, will will carry the for story forward. We have to gather all of these stories, um, and and uh, you know among among other crises, the AIDS crisis, um, and you know the kind of radical. Necessity for protest that matched uh, urgent protests with mourning. You know, I often talk about as urgent memory. Young people dying in um, in public spaces, pro- pointing out the precarity that they could be next, carrying forward a, a tradition that really um, I believe started in in the environmental movement. Um, the notion of the dying and has been right. carried forth in Black Lives Matter protests. So I think of that period anticipating what happens in the 90s too, which is um, those um, kind of more affective or even kind of a, a, a spirit growing um, to, to think about history, both the, the necessity of telling stories and the ones that are missing um, actively and the people that are missing precipitates other kinds of official projects that get grain lit, that get fundraised. It takes five to 10 years to, to, to kind of get there. And at the same time, another thing that that we're thinking about is really reckoning with who is the we, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have all of these kind of um, conversations, design competitions, wills to remember that are are couched around history, but each of them are really about about power and presence in the in that moment. And so those, you know, that's always what's happening. Anytime you see a monument or memorial being being built you can ask what it represents in the past but we should always think about what its builders are trying to present um in the current moment
0: So with that in mind, I, I want to ask you, There's um, and and this will be our segue into COVID-19, we have war memorials aplenty um, and memorials, local memorials of all different types and monuments of all different types. And of course, we have the long, the Confederate memorial inheritance, which I'm sure we'll discuss. We have an absence of what you might call disaster memorials. Now, I define war as disaster, so okay, but But you know, uh, Hurricane Hurricane Katrina. There's not there are a couple. There's some small memorials, but nothing on the scale that you might imagine, given the gravity of the event. Um, You know, earthquakes. um, We could go down the list, and of course, relevant to this year, there's no 1918 influenza pandemic memorial. Why are disasters missing in our memorial culture? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I've, um, I think part of what is the challenge is, is on one hand, you have um, the immediate survivors that are struggling with um, a sense of moving forward. And then sometimes it's the buildings that survive um, profound disasters. And other times it's the people, it's the community. And so there is a way in which, um, you know, one of the kind of moves first is to really think about the kind of personal survival. I do think though there's a question of scale. There are sites in the city of New Orleans, um, official and unofficial, that are dedicated, for example, to the legacy of, of Hurricane Katrina. Um, there is an official city memorial. Um, there is an um, art installation outside of the uh, Morial Convention Center, uh, I believe called Treehouse, which is the recreation of something that would have been seen across the city, which is <clears throat> small homes, not where they're supposed to be. I um, but I think, you know, outside of that life goes on, the, the desires for life to go on. Um, <clears throat> so one of the kind of challenges with the with disaster um, memorials has to do with scale and scope. There are times where, I mean, even, even a war memorial um, I, there's always a question of scale. It's it's a kind of um, um, tragic mathematics is like how many people mm. does it take to mourn, right? I've seen small town memorials that, that mourn a dozen people from a town who were lost. And I've seen others that um, deal with the enormity, tens of thousands of people. Um, so I think in many ways, actually we'll see Uh, memorials that are official, but most of the ways that we remember um, in urgent, in in poetic, in ways that are instructive is often through the work of artists. Mm -hmm. And so I think of, you know, whether it's um, the the novelists, um, the poets, the musicians, the second lines that have animated New Orleans as a way to account for the presence of spirit and the absence of people. I think about um, all kinds of ways, in, in other um, disasters, Hurricane Sandy, the work of, of Zoe Strauss, the Philadelphia photographer, um, and some of that work, while it it might not exist as bronze and marble or you know um, historic historic placard, it gets at the profound, um, intimate, and massive sense of loss. And I think um, you know part of as we're imagining what our monument landscape will look like and thinking about how to, um, in broad, and creative and thoughtful ways, kind of bring the spirit of those memory keepers, of the artists, of the historians, of the of the educators who are able to point out, this is how one life fits into this larger fabric of resilience, of resistance, um, but of loss as well. I think if anything, in this country, we are lacking a full reckoning with our past, um, in ways that can save us for the future, right? I and mean, it is oftentimes the work of the artists who are not only seeking our kind of platform for expression, but inviting us to think about our survival in more meaningful, vital, and urgent ways.
0: But just to stay with this for a second, I want to give credit also to Jacob Steer-Williams, who uh, also anticipated my question to you about disasters and pandemics. And, and just to build off that, because I'm really impressed with this notion um, of the folkloric of the of the uh, artistic the local organic authentic and that practices can be memorial too you said the second line obviously but is it there still is something about the national mall in washington i mean there still is something about privilege of place mm-hmm. in society and maybe this is just me as a person from the 20th century who still grew up with the idea that when you wanted to find out what was what American history was really about, you had to make your trip to Washington DC and go to the mall. And there you saw the National Archives and there you saw the portraits and the statues and that's how you found out what the national culture was. Um, I think obviously we can dispense with that because it's so um, incomplete. And yet at the same time, should we give up on the idea of the National Mall as a repository for memorial culture?
1: Yeah, you know, it's hard, we, it's hard to quit that idea. I, I think, um, you know, the National Mall was not envisioned to be um, a, a, a memorial sculpture park. Instead, you know, it really was envisioned, um, you know, as, as a kind of open common space. Over time, though, as you know, it's marked a, a kind of pride of place, um, of memorial, of monument. But I think, you know, over time, it really was the experience of, for me, living in Washington, DC, spending time at the Lincoln Memorial and seeing, um, you know, this was before there was a national memorial to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, seeing um, on the, uh, like, despite how grand and, and, and powerful that, that space is, right? It commands with a kind of heavy weight. Seeing the words, I have a dream inscribed in bronze into the, into the steps, for me really did it. I realized like, oh, for all of the immense power, the immense um, kind of weight of this history, those words and the footsteps of people who gathered in the name of of peace and justice in 1963, bear an imprint today. I think a lot about the kind of, um, the story of AIDS activism on the mall, Mm -hmm. both the, Uh, AIDS quilt, which we now think of as a part of Americana when the Smithsonian um, had put out a collection uh, um, several years ago about the kind of um, 101 objects that define Americana, Um, you know, the AIDS quilt was included in there, a piece of the Berlin Wall was too, which we Mm -hmm. could talk about. Um, But um, I also then think about how in one sense it was radical to mourn publicly. I also think of some of the more defiant protests happened on the mall. Or adjacent to the mall, you know. I think about Essex Hemphill, a black queer poet who lived in part in Philadelphia, who um, was cautious of the the AIDS quilt. Um, said it's too soon to make monuments um, before we understand the forces of people trying to trying to kill us. So it's also the fact that the White House fence was a place where ACT UP activists would um, not only gather. Um, But a number of people requested their ashes be thrown over the fence. That's the resting place of a lot of queer activists. And, you know, on top of that, just think about for all of the ways that we have marked our history and we're a historically conscious nation, there is no national memorial or monument to slavery in this country. There is now a National Museum of African-American History and Culture. That's different. And, you know, imagine going to Germany and there's no Holocaust memorial. Imagine going to South Africa and there's no apartheid memorial that is federally mandated, that is part of a broad education program, that may be a part of a reparation program as well. I feel like that gives me a sense of of the Washington Mall and has allowed me to both kind of appreciate how it has been reinterpreted, reimagined Mm -hmm. um, over time, but also that the story of the mall, like the story of our democracy is one of gaps, um, um, gaps between the aspiration and the reality. And so, you know, I think I get asked this question, um, I, get a, I get asked a, a related question, I, I think a lot of times, which is like, look, I'm, I'm down for us thinking and reckoning with monuments, but do you ever wince when you see a monument coming down? And, you know, I think, um, I try to think about it as like something that all of us have to unhook, but um, I know I, I stand in this as well, is that our history has valued white property and people over the lives of black and indigenous people um, over time. And that's reflected um, intentionally or unintentionally in our monument landscape. And so part of what I think is a challenge to do is to kind of think about some of the very tools that we think are necessary for the telling of history, preservation, archiving, and both democratize the practice, democratize the space, open it up, whether Mm -hmm. it's all or the archives, and also understand that the silences, that the gaps, the erasures are not, um, are not without the need to reckon with. we actually have to seek them out. We can't, we have to both add and we also have to understand how these stories have been pulled together. Um, and I think the more that we do that, we actually will have more of a path, not just for understanding, but having a, a, a more enhanced practice of history, a more enhanced practice of culture, because we're not trying to protect the lie that this is only a country of 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 freedom. You know, it's a country where the people who were architects of freedom and democracy um, were enslavers. Um, And so, you know, how we got to, we have to do better in terms of institutionalizing that. And at the same time, it's a mindset thing because, because we all know history does not happen because some dude rolls into town on a horse and looks off into the distance. Mm. We don't even go to that kind of statue. To If you want to know a history, you don't say, hold on, I'm going to go to the monument and read right. the book. Yeah. But how do we adjust our mindsets so that we open up the possibility to make this a more democratic and 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 reflective and therefore healing enterprise? I
0: want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Paul Farber today about memory, memorial, and COVID-19. And I, I want to just make sure people are aware. This really nice profile, written by Su in uh, the New Yorker, came out in September, and I've linked that up on, on Twitter. And and the in the piece, um, the journalist talks about uh, talking to you and um, your collaborator at Monument Lab, Kin Lum, and about this year, and. Um, there's this moment in which it's sort of revealed like uh, you had your, of course, antenna up for memorial practice in the moment and you start noticing that statues around the world are wearing masks. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, last
1: March, early March, I'd spent a weekend in Pittsburgh um, and it, th- it was hard to find hand sanitizer. There was a story that there were you know, the coronavirus was 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 coming. Um, I got some hand sanitizer at the airport. I used it every time I opened up a doorknob. I sat there with um, you know some colleagues, including um, yeah, dear mentor Kirk Savage, um, scholar of monuments, and and came back to Philadelphia. And within a few days, um, what I had basically, um, in my own schedule on the work of Monument Lab, we had um, programs all around the country for the for the rest of the the spring and summer and everything was postponed and shuttered. I had uh, my book, my Berlin Wall book was coming out on March 13th. And so we, you know, we did the book launch um, with my puppy in the house um, and and things were happening really fast and we were figuring out what to do. And I had a conversation with Dr. Patricia Kim, who's a member of the Miami Lab team. Um, she's now a postdoctoral fellow at, at NYU, uh, really brilliant um, art and archaeology um, historian, um, especially around um, critical feminist issues, she and I were talking and and we were talking about the Monument Lab social media. And we're like, what do we do? You know, we've started to see these places, um, like bigger museums. We're not a big museum. We see bigger institutions, bigger museums, people kind of expressing um, loss, grief, solidarity. But in those very opening moments that, you know, if we dig back, it's like, we're going to get through this. See you next week. Or We're canceling our event this week. We might see you later this month. So we said, what do we do? You know, What are we gonna do? And so we started, um, I remember I had seen an image on NPR of a um, sculpture festival in Spain that was canceled. And there was a caption said, World Health Organization workers put up a giant face mask on the sculpture. So we just started digging and we said, let's look at every hotspot in the world. Let's look at Wuhan. Let's look at Lombardy. Let's look, and as we were looking, you could see as the virus's um, kind of hotspot, so to speak, moved across the world. In places where public space was being shuttered, people were withdrawing from it. Not to mention the supplies um, for face masks were low. You were seeing these images of statues with face masks, and you know some of them felt, in some way, sophomoric, But we kind of looked the way this was happening and most of them, you know, were not by institutions at that point. Now there are, I've seen museums kind of do this, but um, you know, what we sensed was uh, as people are are withdrawing from public space, um, one of the tasks, both with the tools of public art and social media was to put masks on statues. And, you know, it was not, it was in the history of people, you know, handle statues, people have protested, people put signs on them, people have thrown their own blood, thrown red paint. Sure. So if you think about that as the legacy of monuments, what's happening here and what we what we argued in our piece, um, uh, masked monuments, parting guests for public space, that was on the Monument Lab Bulletin, was this idea that actually, these this was not just about um, a kind of individual take, or a, a kind of prank. This was about the health of the body politic. So on one hand, on hand is a kind of call to wear masks, a, a kind of demonstration of the need to wear masks, but it was also an indictment of the oftentimes um, federal systems or right. other kind of, of, of civic infrastructure that failed citizens, right? The, the kind of urgency in this moment. There's a, a photograph in Lombardy. Italy, right in the middle of the, that kind of um, you know profound hotspot, with an image of um, Saint Francis Assisi wearing an N95 mask, and um, you know we don't know who did it, but we know the effect. And the effect across the world was to um, think about public art as a platform right. for critical engagement, and again just as um it was as much about the kind of need to wear a mask, it wasn't simply public service announcement. Because of the role that monuments have in a society, they're they're a constituency onto themselves. They're the the places where the living and the dead dwell together. This was really about the body politic
0: in any given place. So that's so we have that moment in time and those sets of observations that you were making. Which I really like this idea. People are absenting themselves from public space, but the discussion or the argument is not absent. Um, It's being played out in these the reinterpretation of these monuments, and then Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are murdered, and the United States, um, you know, there's protests in the street. So the streets, which had been empty, are now full. Layer that in in terms of your own thinking at that moment, a person who's spent your career thinking about monuments, as you said earlier, not as just a way we understand history, in fact, not a great way to learn history, but actually as statements about politics in the now.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, throughout the the pandemic months, we had been at Monument Lab preparing for socially distanced engagements um, like our field trip Um, project that we had started in those months beforehand that we wanted, you know, we were hearing from parents and from caretakers and teachers who were really trying to imagine in the summer, if people were going to go outside, what are socially distanced ways to to kind of learn and engage, you know. And then, of course, the the re-eruption of unrest after the murders of um, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and of George Floyd and countless other uh, black and brown people in this country that that again set a re eruption of um, in this movement against um, system uh, systemic racism and, and state violence and monuments you know are not just among the kind of um, places where people are gathering and because they're in you know town squares and city halls and outside of police buildings and the like um, but of course. This is a moment where we heard the tremors a few years ago and the takedowns of several Confederate monuments and the kind of growing um, kind of um, notions of either decolonizing or pushing cities to remove um, really obviously racist um, caricatures um, that they become the lightning rods. And so I think, I mean, I, I can think about a number of things and I remember this kind of moments of watching in Philadelphia, at least, um, you know, the art museum was a gathering place mm-hmm. where so many people filled the space of the art museum and occupied it and layered it, right? With this meaningful um, sense of protest. And then of course the Frank Rizzo statue and and later the Columbus statue for very two very different reasons. Um, And I think, you know, in large part, um, I wouldn't say I was 100% surprised by those moments. The city um, had announced in 2017 that the Rizzo statue had to go. And the mayor had made a number of um, kind of um, announcements over the years, kind of um, acknowledging that and pushing it down the road. I wrote a a Inquirer op-ed in November or December of 2019, um, asking why we were bungling the history, why we were bungling this kind of next chapter for for our city. So I wasn't that surprised. I think some of the things though that changed, which are really interesting, is that after the unrest initially, and I, I I got um, you know, people reached out to me and said, like, you might live stream the takedown of the, I think this thing might come down in, in terms of Frank Rizzo statue, was that. Among the first images, the day after the first big protests in Philadelphia and then the unrest that happened after that was the city sent people to clean an MSB Plaza, including the Rizzo statue and did that before they cleaned up neighborhoods, especially 52nd street in West Philadelphia. And I think that was a moment where, you know, the city had said that like, it's too difficult to move this thing. And within a few hours it was gone um so i you know just just to kind of say overall i you know i think that monuments are the kind of tip of the iceberg when it comes to power in a city and in a country i understand why people protest near them or people express themselves near it or even people try to um um topple or or, or um kind of, uh, reimagine them you know through these kind of intense actions it's because it's really hard to navigate systems of power to make change but monuments were put out there in the first place not because they equal power equal history they were always argumentative claims by people in power looking to extend their power
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so in a way it's actually f- up for grabs you know I think also, just the last thing I want to say about this for now, though, I mean, I'm happy to go forward, but just to pause is that of the monuments that were removed over the summer in this moment of reckoning, you know, I think one of the words of the year is topple. I'm going to name my next book topple because I'm just fascinated by the word, fascinated by the idea. But um, the majority, the large majority of monuments that were removed over the summer were done by local municipalities and by ordinances. Um, and so what does it mean that the headlines that we see in the newspaper or the prominent images are of the um, takedowns and it's and and on the other hand, the majority of those monuments are taken down were either because activists made that possible um, or because the local cities said enough is enough, we gotta do it. I spoke to US mayors over the, um, uh, summer i spoke to city council people all over the country but of course you know our our people are the activists and organizers and i think i I'm, i think that that gives a little bit of insight of why people go to monuments as a way to reckon with systems of power it's much harder to go to the the seats of power than it is to go to your town square to amplify your voice and make your presence felt
0: So and you, I, I like how you, you staged that. I mean, the, the idea that uh, Confederate uh, memorial, that Robert E. Lee needs to come down, it's, it's not a new idea. I mean, there have been people who have been fighting for that for an awfully long time, certainly from 2017 on, it's been a pretty steady drumbeat. But um, I'm just going to ask you a question I've been asked as a historian. Well, once we start doing that, um, what's next? I mean, is Jefferson coming down is is Washington coming down? I mean, if we're talking about slave ownership, um, and we're reckoning with that past, how can we possibly, I mean, Benjamin Franklin allowed the trading of slaves out of his office on on Market Street. Um, so I'm oh, sorry, on High Street. So where's the the end of that? And I know that question. I ask it in that way because that's how I'm often asked, which is to say, once you open this Pandora's box of reinterpreting these memorials and monuments, you'll never stop. When will you ever be satisfied?
1: Yeah, you know, we need a full reckoning with our history, um, and I think that is a pathway. Whether that's um, you know through public testimony or studies, or you know maybe it's not going to happen from the federal government. So we, as educators, as 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 organizers, have to do it ourselves. Um, but I think I, I ask the question, or I think about the question in a different way. Like rather than what's next? Is anything sacred? Like, well, yeah, what's sacred is is um the life of of people in this country and the um inability to acknowledge the systems of of racism, of exploitation as part of the nation's history. you can, you know, I, I think about, like in the tradition of of James Baldwin, you know, you can love a place enough to critique it and critically engage it. And so I think we, I know that we have the capacity to have critical complex conversations, um, but I know they're difficult. Ben Franklin late in his life was an abolitionist, but for the majority of his life um, was an enslaver. Um, His Pennsylvania Gazette presented, um, printed um, what we call runaway slave ads. And so how do we think about that, right? In a city that has Benjamin Franklin statues all over the place and a parkway and a high school.
0: Everywhere.
1: You know, I think um, maybe another way to answer it is if we don't have the conversation, you get to a point where you feel like there is a impasse where it's either it stays or it goes. And so, you know, there are people across this city in Philadelphia and across our country and frankly, of course, across the world have been innovating this um, field of, of memory work. And I'd say ask them, ask the communities who've been deeply affected. Find out ways that, um, big and small, that we can add to a fuller history. Because I think if you say, but where does it stop? Or what if you open Pandora's box? And I know you're repeating the way that people ask you. What you're also saying is, um, I'd rather stick my head in the sand and pretend that the history is not as complex, um, that, um, that we don't need to address historic wounds and ongoing legacies of injustice. I'm fine with the way it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I don't think that that that's necessarily where people are, are trying to go, though some are. I think some people staunchly do not want to have the conversation because it might question their power. Truly power um, is not some kind of static thing. It doesn't live in any one monument it's in the um, ability to kind of create space and opportunity and vitality for people. So um, I think we should have the conversation. I'm thinking about um, uh, editorial cartoon by Sidney Wilkinson in, in, in over the summer, it was a picture of William Penn looking down from the top of city hall saying, don't look up here, don't look up here. Mm. And so I, I, I'm looking for city thought leaders to take on these questions preemptively. And if they don't, we, Um, in the field will continue to do so, trying to find productive, but also um, meaningful and thoughtful ways um, to speak truth to power and to really reckon with the monuments we've inherited and try to imagine what comes next.
0: Talking to Paul Farber on COVID calls, and we're almost up on time, but I want to make sure we get to, so um, first of all, congratulations, the Mellon Foundation has said they're going to put $250 million into reimagining, reinterpreting memorials in the United States. And I think Monument Lab received the first of those grants, if I'm not mistaken, that's t- tremendous. And um, congrats on that. And you, this has been a year of great activity for you, even though we've all been locked down and, and distant and not getting on planes and going to Berlin and, and Hiroshima and other places. And I wanna, um, the last time I had you on, you were just about to go to um, an art installation that uh, Monument Lab was engaged with that you put on. Uh, Tell us about that. I've got a couple of photographs up here, and maybe you can interpret a little bit about what we're seeing.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm a part of a, a collective in Philadelphia called Cleanse 215, um, and it includes Michelle Angela Ortiz, um, Lori Wasselchuk, um, Ricardo Rivera, and, and Michelle Barbary of Clip Collective, um, and we've worked in a few different times over the last year um, to think about um, sites or stories of, um, of, of conflict, of contests, of struggle, and try to bring light in the form of projection and an artwork to the situation. We, um, a month after um, the, the former mural to Frank Rizzo was removed from um, the kind of uh, Ninth and Montrose wall, we projected onto it as the, as the first group to add new stories to that space, especially from artists featuring um, workers of color in the market, family stories. Um, And so we wanted to do something related to COVID. We wanted to model a COVID memorial, Um, not to say this is the only form it would take, but we wanted to kind of, for ourselves and for um, people who might see this, especially online, to make sure that we don't just let time pass, let the loss of life that's catastrophic pass, we wanted to find ways to mark the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and systemic racism and, and do so in public space. And so we gathered together at Bartram's Garden at the, at the bandstand. This was not an event like we normally do where we try to drive as many people to it as possible. It was really a small, sparse group, but um, you know, so many people can see it online and it becomes an archive and it becomes a reference point. And so what we tried to do is um, both include the work of several artists who have been documenting the life of protest and um, life of frontline workers, and also put a series of messages um, on a, a kind of large scale face mask that um, we can think about as touchstones. And and you know the image that you have up here, I, I think a lot about. T- Two hundred twenty-two thousand plus Americans died. When we wrote that, we put the plus sign this is a, it's a, it's a a sad state that we are facing down catastrophic loss. And as you said, at the top of the show, you know, we, we are, um, you know, at a point, I believe 275,000, um, confirmed Americans have, have died though. I, you know, I've read reports that, that those are, are conservative numbers. That, that is an immense amount of loss. So, you know, how do you measure that? Sometimes you measure it with the, Obituary that you read at the top of the show, faces of COVID nineteen on Twitter. It pa- I pause on it every time. Um, so I think this was another attempt as a group of artists um, in a city that, by the way, has no official public art office. Um, uh, that was it was cut in in June um, to think about what we can do to um, shift mindsets and also create spaces of of cleansing of healing um, by bringing. These kind of messages out the public space.
0: So this is projected on, and the first picture is a little harder to tell but you again you got the mask motif here and you're projecting this um, and then there were multiple people can check this out on your Instagram uh, page and I'll put the link up to that so we have those So we have sort of a textual intervention and then this one which is just tremendous.
1: Yeah I mean the group, um, The Cleanse Group is is an amazing group that have really just like jumped into action. Um, and I think part of what is important in, in, in this moment is that we have to um, on one hand, um, you know, shift as much as we have to in order to keep creating, in order to create messaging, but we also have to do the things that we do. You know, Toni Morrison said, in times of crisis, this get to work. And so every artist that I know, you know, whether they work in or outside of an institution um, already was working from a point of view of urgency and amped that up throughout the pandemic, whether that was making face masks, whether that was, um, you know, organizing mutual aid, whether that was thinking about ways to fundraise or, or, or activate, um, you know, uh, modes of resistance. So, you know, it's just, again, I think in this moment that we're in now, this long moment, how art is a part of our conversation, it will be both a path forward and a way to reflect on what is behind us. And I think if anything, you know, modeling and speculating on like a COVID memorial, I hope, you know, as you mentioned that there are, there are no um, prominent, um, you know, 1918 um, influenza memorials, more, um more soldiers died of influenza in World War I than they did in combat, but um, they coincided and people um, didn't memorialize the pandemic. And we are learning some of the same lessons over and over again now. So hopefully these kind of projects, though they're temporary, um, they linger in the insistence to remember as a way to move forward.
0: I've kept you too long. I told you I was going to keep you a couple of minutes after six, and we're almost a quarter past. So I want to—I don't want to take too much more of your time. Maybe you can just tell us fifteen seconds. Um, what your first project is going to be with this Mellon Foundation work?
1: Yeah. So we are really grateful for this support to be the inaugural um, grantees of the Monuments Project. We're especially excited because there's going to be a whole field of other people, colleagues, collaborators partners um, who over the next five years will be funded. And you can tune in next Wednesday night. Um, I'm part of a dialogue hosted by the Mellon Foundation um, president, Elizabeth Alexander. Um, It's at 5 p.m. next Wednesday about the Monuments Project. Um, And the first thing that we are doing as Monument Lab, we're doing a national monument audit. We have an amazing team with Lori Allen, Sue Mobley, Brian Poo, and a team of researchers across the country who are gathering every data set that we can find on monuments and pulling them together and having them fit together in ways to offer uh, a a kind of full view of the monuments that we've inherited. And by the way, the monument data sets have big holes in them, right? Mm -hmm. Different track them in different ways, but um, in, early part of spring, we'll release it in the way that we like to, right? We're artists, so there will be a publication, there will be a data set, but lots of opportunity to engage, plug in, and um, we're excited for that. We'll also release in the next few weeks, a kind of public call for participation for history professors and communities to imagine how they might help in these efforts. Um, But you can always follow us at monument underscore lab um, or join one of our mailing lists is the best way to be plugged in. And we're excited to, to, to kind of move forward with this, this um, stage of our work.
0: I want to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, wrapping up another big week uh, tomorrow, the first part of the hour tomorrow. Please do join me tomorrow. I'll be talking to Terrell Hagler again. Uh, you know him as Trash Man. Um, And we'll be talking to him about essential workers and sanitation workers in Philadelphia. And I want to thank Paul Farber. Um, We'll have to have you back. We didn't get through. I have about 10 more questions here. So let's talk again. Your work will be ongoing. And just to say, thank you so much for what you and your colleagues are doing right now. We're not waiting till this disaster is over to figure out what it means. You're, You're helping us work through it in the moment.
1: Well, thank you. I'm so grateful for this conversation and for all the work that you do, Scott. So
0: this, I'm, I'm glad to 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 come back again. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.